This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of I Know That Face, the only podcast which honors the often underappreciated by the masses work of character actors. I'm Stephen Portio. My name is Andrew Carroll. And this episode is the first in a two-part deep dive on a legendary actor who's uh, got to have more cowbell. It's uh, Christopher Walken. Hey. Andrew, run down his history. Christopher Walken was born in 1943. I was born in 1943. No, I'm not going to do that this week. Oh, I'll leave that to the horror episodes. Um... Christopher Walken was born in 1943 in New York City. Walken studied dance and drama at Washington Dance Studios, having been acting on stage and TV since he was nine years old. He made his film debut in Sidney Lumet's... Or Sidney Lumet's? Lumet. Lumet? Yeah. Okay. The Anderson Tapes? Mm, The The Anderson Tapes. Always wanted to watch uh, it. With a small role opposite Sean Connery. In 1977, Walken's reputation for eccentric parts and wacko one-scene wonders was set in stone with his portrayal of the distressingly crazy brother in the Woody Allen film Annie Hall. (laughs) It was his role as the emotionally devastated soldier Nick in Michael Cimino's, or Cimino's, depending on how, on how Italian you are, Let's call epic the Hulk war drama, <laughs> The Deer Hunter, that won him the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. As the 80s came around, Walken became relied on as an eccentric and out-there supporting player, as well as, as an occasional eccentric and out-there leading man. Some choice cuts from this decade include The Dogs of War, Tom the Tap-Dancing Pimp in Pennies from Heaven, David Cronenberg's The Dead Zone, Max Zorin in the James Bond picture A View to a Kill, At Close Range... Mike Nichols' Biloxi Blues and Robert Redford's The Milagro Beanfield War. The 1990s began with Christopher Walken starring in Abel Ferreira's blowout neo-noir King of New York, but it would be two cameo roles in the coming years that would enshrine Walken as King of the Character Actors. You already know what those roles are, but you'll have to wait until next time to hear about them. Yes, exactly. Um, So we've settled into this tradition where at the end of the year we'll do a two-part episode on a legendary performer with a very lengthy career that I think we classify as a character actor, so we've done... Willem Dafoe, mm. Tilda Swinton, John Malkovich. And um, those three in Walken are interesting because on one level, they are definitely character actors mm-hmm. in that they are maybe too unique to be A-listers because yeah. I think like speaking super generally, to be a star, there's this thing where the person needs to be so broadly likable that they can appeal to like as big an audience as possible and that by casting this person you are alienating the fewest people from the movie they're mm. in. Yeah. Um, whereas those names I mentioned, they have particular natural qualities that come out on screen, kind of like the otherworldliness of Swinton, the anger of Malkovich, the sinisterness of the foe, that might make it difficult for certain viewers to put themselves in the actor's character shoes. Mm. Yeah. It's a uh, li- I, rem- I imagine few people could imagine themselves as Bobby Peru or Max yeah, Zarin. exactly. Lack the country. It's harder for them to be every man or every woman because like no one looks or sounds like them mm, yeah and um but those same qualities actually give them like a long career because anytime there's a supporting character or a lead in an indie movie who fits those sort of descriptions they're the actors you go to yeah but i think what makes these people particularly interesting and walking is that they're so 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 talented that the more audiences watch them do their particular thing the more over time audiences grow to love them for it and associate them with it and it's almost like a cult of fans emerges around them akin to like what happens with A-listers mm. so for example I brought in this prop earlier this summer I went to an independent zine festival in Glasgow and I bought a magazine made by Chris Print this 
uh, shout out. And the magazine was called The Swinney, which is described as a 16-page activity fanzine about the one and only Catherine Matilda Swinton. You can oh. scroll through it and there's like funny bits and oh, stuff. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. So Take a picture of that maybe. Absolutely. So when we... Uh... As this is not a visual co- podcast, but when the podcast is released, I'll uh, post a picture of Jesus. Yeah, oh, there's even a cutout mask in there's here. There's a cutout Jesus. mask. There's uh, little funny games. Um, yeah. There's like a dress like Helena Marcos in Suspiria. <laughs> and like all the things you need. Yeah, it's very funny. Yeah. Um, but basically, so this type of fandom combined with these actors as they continue to work increasingly going like more against type and picking roles that show off different strings to their bow the actors start getting lead roles and like walking a start in a bunch of big movies he's a household name so I can understand people asking like is he really a character actor mm. and so what I mean to say is should we come up with a name for this class of character actor who is also super famous because they are different to um, you know Michael Wincott very true yeah um, yeah and I sp- suspect you've come up with a nope. title or no <laughs> Really? Oh. You're the witty one. Oh, okay. Uh, we'll, maybe for part two, yeah, I'll yeah, work on it. Yeah. Um, Let's have a think on it and come back. Watch this space. Yes. But, uh, speaking specifically about Walken, um, I think two of his most defining qualities are his uh, smooth voice and quirky delivery of dialogue. Mm. This is the story of him hosting SNL when uh, Foo Fighters were the musical guest that Dave Grohl tells where um, Walken came up to Grohl and asked him, is the emphasis on Foo or on Fighters? And Grohl knowing who he is, said fighters instead of foo, which it really mm. is. And then Walken went out and said, like, ladies and gentlemen, foo fighters. <laughs> um, and I think because of that distinct delivery style he has, people like to give him monologues. And mm. um, I wanted to ask you, like, is Walken the actor with the most iconic monologues or single scenes in the history of cinema? Uh, yeah, for sure, probably. I mean, the, the outside two... of the Mike Flanagan universe. Yeah. Oh, that's true, Jesus. Yeah, yeah, I love him, but yeah. uh, the, every character gets like, a, it's like, oh, this is my time to cook. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, just... Yeah. Walking on the walk. <laughs> <laughs> true romance, Pulp Fiction. Mm. But then also like, Man on Fire. Up his ass. Yeah, exactly. Cruises out his death. He's about to paint his masterpiece. Um, You know, Catch Me If You Can, like, Two Little Mice. Found a bucket of cream. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> or um, uh, the bit in The Simpsons where he's like, a cow jumps over the moon. <laughs> yeah. Hey, kid, why are you scooching away? Scooch back here. Come on. Scoochy, scoochy. <laughs> All these crying is children. Is that him really? Is that I don't him? know if it's actually know. him because they have a Stephen King cameo on that bit as well, but I don't think it's actually Stephen King. Yeah, yeah. But um, I saw um people resharing his monologue in Nick of Time. Do you ever see that one? Where um he's talking about his villain character is threatening... Johnny Depp's character in the movie, Johnny Depp's hero, uh, by describing how he killed his friend in cold blood when he messed up a job. And he's like, that was somebody I loved. I loved him. But I got the call and I put him down like a sick animal. And then he says to Depp, if you don't deliver, I'll make gravy out of you, little girl. (laughs) (laughs) Um... And that's another thing about Walken that's incredible. Um, as yeah, Roger Ebert notes, like he has this chilling ability to move between easy charm and pure evil. Mm. There's just something about the smooth, often playful way that he speaks that when you have him delivering threatening dialogue, particularly after seeming so genial, just makes your blood run cold. Yeah. And um, you'll definitely see that in two of the movies we'll cover today, um, King of New York and At Close Range, which mm. I only I watch. But um, I will say what's weird is that though all those trademarks I listed that make him such a great recognizable actor aren't really in The Deer Hunter or The Dead Zone. No, no. I mean, there's, there's a little bit more in um, The Dead Zone, I think. The ice is gonna break! Yeah, gonna but I also that, think but... that they are more naturally part of the movie where he's really... Yeah, yeah. He's he's, he's more, more every man in those yeah, movies, yeah. which is strange. Although I think there is a through line between uh, from The Deer Hunter through The Dead Zone and into King of New York that I, uh, I'll talk about a bit later. But, Excellent. Yeah. 
and we look forward to it. And um, I should say as well, just I feel really nervous about doing this pod because Walking Such a Titan and because three of the movies we'll talk about there are five-star flicks for me and uh, I prepared way too many notes, but let's get into okay, it. Okay, let's go. Um, the Deer Hunter. We kick off? Go for it. So this is uh, the 1978 Oscar Best Picture winner, uh, which centers on a trio of friends from a tight-knit Slavic-American community in Western Pennsylvania. Mike, played by Robert De Niro, Stephen, played by John Savage, and Nick, played by Christopher Walken, whose lives are disrupted after being called to fight in the Vietnam War. While there, the three are imprisoned by the Viet Cong in a cage along a river and forced to participate in games of Russian roulette while the jailers bet. A very distressing and controversial sequence, which we'll get into. Mm. Eventually escaping the POW camp, the three wind up getting split up and all in different ways struggle to adjust to civilian life. Everything's going so fast. Hey, Nick. Think we'll ever come back? From that? Yeah. You know something? The whole thing. It's right here. I love this fucking place. I know that that sounds <laughs> crazy, but if anything happens, Mike, don't don't leave me over there. You got you gotta just don't leave me. You gotta promise me that, Mike. Hey. Oh man, you got you gotta you gotta promise definitely. Hey Nicky. I saw in Letterboxd you're not a huge fan of this movie or if that was an old review Uh, it was probably an old review I watched this about three years ago 2020 it would have been so like uh, around the end of 2020 I think and I thought at the time it was well like you know you're watching something meant for like the biggest screen possible on a smallish TV and uh, you know it's uh it's very long. It feels quite long. It has a lot of detail. And, you know, over time, I've become a bit more... I've softened a bit on it. I think it's... Um, I think all that detail is kind of necessary to see where these characters go over the course of the film. And it is like a complex sort of slow burn epic full of complicated and damaged characters who only become more complex and damaged as the movie goes on. I, I guess I thought it would be more of a war film. Sure. And the war is only like a quite a... I guess the war overshadows it, but it the actual combat, you know, yes, the, the, the yeah. things you go to see a war film for. Kind of Apocalypse Now is the same thing. Similar, yeah, but at least the, the war is the whole the thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, and I think what I... I didn't re-watch it for this because I, uh, if I did, I worried I'd have a, a, the same reaction or an even worse reaction to when I watched it the first time. No, it could have, it could have been the opposite. But, um, you know, we spend a lot of time just living these characters' lives alongside them experiencing like their joy, sorrow, heartbreak and, and friendship. Um, and that's something I've grown to appreciate as, as time has gone by. Um, it operates on a similar vibe to like a lot of Bruce Springsteen and Stephen King's late 70s, early 80s stuff, which means I should like it more because I'm big fans of those men. You know, it's like Steel Foundries, Average Joes, and in Stephen King's case... Uh, I don't know, monsters, but uh, the monster is uh, the Vietnam War in this. Yeah. I think with all that said, the performances are pretty uniformly phenomenal. And uh, I think the ending is really poignant. Uh, just on Walken, I do think Nick's character arc is the is the best. Um, even if it is the most tragic, because he makes Mike promise to bring him back from Vietnam, which Mike does uh, in under very sad, distressing circumstances. Um and I think Walken's expressive sort of wide open face and his off-kilter accent make things, they make things look easy for him, mm. I think. And uh, 
talent is like a key thing for actors, especially leading stars. But I would say that honing that talent into a skill will give any actor longevity, but especially character actors. And that's obvious. But Walken's features and voice are, are, are assets here, but the emotional tools he uses are far more interesting. I think Nick is written so well that any actor could play him, but Walken brings Nick to life in those first few scenes with his sort of joie de vivre and yeah. enthusiasm for life. Dancing. Uh, dancing. He's Which dancing, is a frequent yeah. Frequent walking thing, thing yeah. yeah. Um, he's not, he doesn't, he's not a walking, he's a dancing. Um, Excellent. Um, as well as his fear that everything will change when he goes off to war. You know, there's mm. the bit where they all run to um, the playground after the wedding at night, and I can't remember who gets naked. Is it what? De Niro. De Niro. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah. I well. love this place. I love this place. <laughs> Don't leave me over there. And everything does change. You know, Nick becomes a ghost of his former self, a PTSD, an afflicted zombie with a heroin addiction and self-destructive tendencies. And it's an emptiness he'd used to great effect and is different, but nonetheless disaffected performances in The Dead Zone and King of New York. And it's that sense that there's some, certainly something there behind the eyes, some spark of goodness or hope, but it's buried under so much thick, dark muck that it will have probably never see the light of day again. That's what Walken is so good at, and it's what I think will make him such a rewarding actor to cover over the next six weeks or so. Absolutely. Yeah, no, um, I think this is a masterpiece, although I'll caveat it by saying like one maybe of its time and one with some definite flaws. The, the big flaw of this movie is that there are no documented cases of American soldiers being forced to play Russian roulette mm. um, while being prisoners of war in Vietnam. I also think the depiction of Vietnamese people in this movie, the vast majority of which are seen instigating or cheering on or laughing at these acts of horrendous violence, is pretty terrible. Yeah. Especially in contrast to like the film's depiction of American soldiers who are painted as wholly sympathetic. Mm. Um, I don't think we even see any violence committed by American soldiers against other people except out of self-defense in the movie. Which is kind of wild. <laughs> isn't there, isn't, isn't it the bit where they're in combat start with like Robert De Niro burning down a hut with a flamethrower or something like that? I thought it was the Viet Cong you see do it. I can't remember yeah. exactly, but yeah, maybe you're right. But um, I do think The Deer Hunter is a fascinating historical document as being one of the first major Hollywood movies about the Vietnam War. You know, it was released only three years after the fall of Saigon, the run up to which we see depicted in the movie. And I think it has like undeniable artistic merit, as you kind of outlined. Um, I know many people criticize the first hour of this 180 minute long movie that all takes place like in the run up to during and in the aftermath of um, the John Savage character's wedding. Uh-huh. And um, I just feel that like, yeah, you can slam like the movie's depiction of Vietnam, but I think the American set scenes feel um, so authentic yeah, and well observed and lived in. Really well, richly drawn. Yeah. And they are all, everything set in America looks beautiful. Really does. Yeah. yeah. And like the way it outlines like in this long wedding sequence, like sets up all the characters, how like idyllic it is in the community, but also how there are these like underlying problems. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, Meryl Streep's character is like fleeing her abusive alcoholic father. Or yes, something like exactly. That. And yeah. then she there's a love triangle where she's dating uh, the Christopher Walken character Nick, but Mike, the Robert De Niro character, is in love with her. Mm. And there's a lot of like you're catching glimpses of the three of them. Yeah, like there's a part where um, Robert De Niro pulls Linda, the Meryl Streep character, away, and you see Walken like look over, kind of concerned, looking, mm. and then that scene. Robert De Niro is drunkenly talking to Linda and at one point he moves in to kiss her and then thinks better of it and moves away really quickly <laughs> mm. and Linda catches him and is kind of like laughing. Um, just really, all just really well observed and none of it is said. No, none yeah, of it is yeah. like spoken. It's all just um, glances and body language yeah. and stuff like that. And um, yeah, you just really get a feel for other characters. Nick is the, sort of the golden boy of the community walking. Um, Mike De Niro is the more quiet introspective kind of tense person Steven is the kind but maybe not as intelligent mm. as the others and um, 
yeah, it just shows to Youngs how close this group of friends are, the joy of this community that they will leave behind, but also the problems and the violence lurking within it as well. And um, there's also like an amazing sense of foreboding throughout that sequence where you have um, John Cazale's mm. character. We have John Cazale, man. Mm. We lost him so yeah, soon. I know. Incredible yeah, actor. Yeah. Best film career of any person. Five movies. All yeah, best five for five. <laughs> five best picture nominees. But um, he's looking in the mirror of a car and he's like in his wedding attire mm. and the it's cracked and it feels a bit like that's going to be like his friend group is right, going to yeah, splinter yeah. off. There is the bit where... Um, Stephen, the John Savage character, and his wife are drinking from the like a, a conjoined goblet, mm. and the priest is like, it's like a R- Russian Orthodox wedding, and the priest is like, if you don't spill a drop, you will have good luck for the rest of your lives. And they drink, and it seems like they have not spilled a drop, but then like Chimino does a close up, and you see like there's like two drops on her dress, and mm. then you know Stephen doesn't fare too well in no, Vietnam, no, no. and then they also also like he actually loses two things in Vietnam. Yes, yeah. that's true. Um, then. There's a, yeah, that's even more symbolism than I, I'd read into it. No, um, <laughs> just the, off the top of my head. Yeah, beautiful. Incredible. Yeah. Incredible work by Andrew Carroll. <laughs> but, um, who is this man? There Sorry, is the, um, the soldier at the wedding who shows up and is like drinking in the bar and Robert De Niro goes up to try and talk to him mm. and he's like trying to ask him like advice about what, what, what's Vietnam going to be like? Yeah. And the guy just is like clearly traumatized and, doesn't want to talk and Rob Deere eventually like almost fights him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember watching an interview with uh, Christopher Walken on the Dick Cavett show um, and he was talking to him about the Deer Hunter and he was saying like, like that's pretty accurate. Like most of the people he tried to talk to about the Vietnam War wouldn't talk to him about it. Yeah. Because yeah. probably there's a lot of like yeah, it was a lot trauma of sh- and shame and yeah. stigmatism attached to it. Yeah. And um, so that all, whole sequence is amazing and um, Walken, that scene you mentioned where uh, I think like Walken throughout that scene is being a bit blasé about the war because he doesn't want to like bring down the wedding and bring mm. up how anxious he is and I think when him and Robert De Niro have that kind of like quiet moment after the wedding where Robert De Niro says like do you think he'll ever come back and he he unleashes this whole thing about like how much he loves the town and how he's like don't leave me over there Mike don't leave me over mm. there It's I think that feels like it's been playing on his mind the whole time and it all like spills out the minute he gets a chance to say it Yeah. Um. and then like I think you can like pick apart the war sequences but just Russian roulette scene um while not reflective of real life um just very effective in its tautness yeah. and in how nightmarish it is and um i think there is something to be said for like artistic license and metaphor and shimino and his defenders interpretation of that scene like they will say and i, I think i agree that the motif of russian that is a pretty apt distillation of the chaotic violence and randomness of, of war like a lot of the time why one soldier lives and another dies is random like, mm. you know, um, one person just happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time and another wasn't. And you just wish that motif in the film wasn't framed entirely through the lens of like, Americans good, Vietnamese bad. Yeah. <laughs> but um, as I said, um, The Deer Hunter was, yeah, Walken's real big break and uh, what really established him as a major actor and obviously won the Best Supporting Actor award for it. Um, but uh, as I said before, I think what's re- interesting is that for an actor who's become so renowned for his like quirky line readings and his ability to deliver really captivating monologues, like he doesn't do a lot of that in The Deer Hunter. And um, I think the thing that wins him the Oscar is the the part of the film where after he's escaped the POW camp, um, where he you know was forced to play Russian roulette and is like wandering around like the U.S. military hospital and Saigon. He's trying to adjust back to normality, but whether due to like PTSD or survivor's guilt, like he just can't do it. So there's the part where the doctor is asking him questions about his family history for form in the hospital, and every time Nick goes to answer, like he starts to cry, like it's uncontrollable, and then 
he goes to call Linda, but as he's phoning her, he hangs up and then he leaves the hospital and meets a sex worker who he goes off with, but nothing happens because he's too agitated. And I think she says at one point, like, what would you like to call me? And he says, Linda, like the Mouse Troop character. But when she calls herself that, he doesn't like it. And then there's like a crying baby in the scene. It's like, oh, very grim. Mm. And then like he stumbles into a den where more people are playing Russian roulette and he is both kind of like repulsed by the game and also by seeing Mike, the Robert De Niro character there watching along who I think is also struggling to process mm. what happened in a different way. And uh, I, I feel like just all unspoken, you just get the sense that Nick said to himself, like, what's happened to me is too messed up. I'll never be normal again. Like, I can't bring this back to Linda yeah. and go back home. So Nick leaves and goes AWOL. And then we don't see the character again until the climax of the movie, like which we shouldn't spoil. But like, he's not in a long part of it, but yeah. like his shadow looms over yeah, the whole third very act. Much so, yeah. And, um, I think Walken was honoured by the Oscars for managing McVeigh so much the viewer about the state of Nick post-war with so few words and limited screen time. And like, while Nick's particular experience at war may have been different to all real-life Vietnam vets, given like the thing about US soldiers not being forced to play Rush mm, yeah. um, his portrayal of a soldier suffering from PTSD from the Vietnam War was probably one of the first times that experience was represented on screen. And I think what's interesting is that Deer Hunter won five Oscars, Best Picture... Best Director, Best Supporting Actor for Walken. Um, De Niro was nominated in Best Actor and Streep and Best Supporting Actress, but they don't win. Um, do you know who beat De Niro? No, I don't think so. John Voight in Coming Home. Oh, in I which didn't even he, know he was an Oscar winner. Yeah, in which he played a paraplegic Vietnam War veteran huh. who comes home. Huh. So, like, I think movies like Coming Home and The Deer Hunter being released three years after the war ended are the first sort of wave of Hollywood movies reckoning with. Mm, that, time, that yeah, part of American yeah. history and its after effects and um, I think still to this day like Walken's portrayal of someone struggling with PTSD feels very true even if the specific circumstances of how the character got it done mm, yeah but yeah, um, that's I, true but uh, yeah, yeah. still think an incredible piece of work maybe isn't held is in high regard now as it was when it was released just because it's not a particularly fun movie to rewatch in the way of something yeah. like The Godfather or yeah. other movies of that like new Hollywood 70s era. Yeah, but, um, that's true. Yeah. Do you ever see Rolling Thunder? I have it on Blu-ray. I've never watched oh, it. Oh, it's very good. Yeah. I've heard it's going to play a part in the new Tarantino movie. Huh. Okay. Apparently he, he, he asked Schrader, could I recreate Rolling Thunder? So we've got that to look forward <laughs> <Yeah>. to. <laughs> um, we talk about The Dead Zone. I mentioned the Rolling Thunder because it's a great like sort of reckoning reckoning oh, right. with PTSD I think yes. uh, two soldiers come home and they're like really fucked up um, by the war anyway I recommend it to people if uh, they want a nice tight 90 minute thriller from the 70s yes uh, The Dead Zone John Smith played by Christopher Walken is a school teacher in Castle Rock, Maine who awakens from a coma five years after a car accident to discover that he can see the future Johnny does his best to help those who come to him including a sheriff played by Tom Skerritt desperate to catch a killer and his doctor played by Herbert Loam but finds himself growing physically weaker all while pining for his old girlfriend played by Brooke Adams who now volunteers for the sinister Senate candidate Greg Stilson played by a wonderfully oily and unbelievable Martin Sheen I organised a hockey team for Chris and some of his friends huh Chris? We have our first practice this afternoon you are looking at the coach call it off take that stuff in the garage okay? There's going to be an accident call it off call it off? Before. Chris has been looking forward to this all week, huh? He's really coming out of his shell, John. Wait. I gotta talk to you. A little nourishment, and then we'll hit the eye. No, no, listen to me. Call it off. There's gonna be an accident. Call it off. Well, ridiculous. We always get on that pond until March. What the hell is the matter with you? You wanna kill your own son? I'm scared, Dad. 
For Christ's sake, John. Don't be scared. Just go eat your cookies. Don't you know who I am? Of course I know who you are. You think I'd have you come into my son's life without checking you out? But I hired you for your abilities as a teacher, not as a fortune teller. Now, don't give me any arguments. The ice is gonna break! I want you out of here. So this is a film, it's a David Cronenberg, famous body horror and psychological thriller. And this is a more of a psychological thriller, I would say, sort of, maybe horror, psychological horror thriller. Also, yeah. for a lot of it, kind of a melodrama. Yeah, yeah. Which really, I really yeah. like. Because it, do, it does initially start as a kind of an awkward boy meets girl romance before like heel turning into one man's living nightmare in the ninth circle of hell, which was actually Canada in the middle of a deep freeze, but sure. <laughs> And so it has this script that feels like it was revised to within an inch of its life by director David Cronenberg, producer. Deb- I have Deborah Jill Hill written here, but it's actually Deborah Hill. Deborah Hill. Of- so it's kind of three horror legends coming together. Yeah, and Cronenberg, screenwriter Mark Bohm. Yeah. Jeffrey Bohm, I thought. Je- Mar- ah, whoever. Yeah. Um, Who wrote The Lost Boys and uh, apparently has a writing credit on Indiana Jones. Yes, the Last Crusade. that guy. Yeah, yes. yeah. Um, yeah, so Steve- Stephen King, Deborah Hill and David Cronenberg, all legends. Um and it feels that it's a script that really feels like every word was chewed over and really elevates this above a lot of other sort of Stephen King adaptations of the time, I think. Pretty uh, merciless in its cuts from the book, from what I've seen. Yeah, I think for the best. And in fairness, the, uh, from what I've read of the book, I haven't read the book. Before I read of it, it's a very it's episodic as well, sort of. Uh, although I think there are two dueling timelines in the book. I think you see Stilson as a kid and you see Johnny as a kid. And I think Johnny's kind of hinted to that he has some sort of supernatural abilities, but they're dormant mm. in the book. But in the movie, they, he just gets them after the car yeah. accident, yeah. which I think is smart. Like, I, yeah, I think, yeah, yeah, it's true. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I don't know if the if all the lines in the movie are in the book, but uh, the bit where like, like it's it starts off sort of like like as pretty crap patter between like Johnny is like, oh, I'll, I'm crazy about you. I'm gonna marry you to like his. Um, Mother revealing that uh, his girlfriend has moved on and she's like, she cleaves now onto another man. Yes. A husband. <laughs> and, and he's crying in the bed. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and uh, is, um, he's visited by uh, his, his ex-girlfriend and he just quotes Sleepy Hollow to her. It's like, as he was a bachelor and in nobody's debt, no one gave him much thought anymore. And she's like, is that what you're afraid of? And he's like, it's what I want. Yeah. Um, he goes on to play the, the head. Yeah, the Headless Horseman, the Hessian in uh, Tim Burton's adaptation. Yeah. And uh, someone, someone's like, God bl- God has blessed you. And he's like, bless me. Oh, God's been a real sport to me. Yeah, incredible. Um, just the, the ice is going to break. And I, I the line on my favorite one, though, is when uh, in the dream he has about um, Martin Sheen's character starting nuclear war is where um, uh, he's like, He's hits the he hits the nuclear launch button in the dream, and uh, his cabinet arrive, and he's like, Mister. They're like, we found a we found a solution. Don't worry, Mister. President. He's like, Mister. Vice President, Mister. Secretary. The missiles are flying. Hallelujah, Hallelujah. <laughs> I love when um you know the way like Mark Ruffalo famously said like they knew in yeah, spotlight. Yeah. He um touches the serial killer's mom's hand, and he's like, you knew. You knew, and she's like, "You're the devil, <laughs> sent from hell." It's, it's crazy. Yeah, just the perfect amount of weird. Yeah, for absolutely. a Cronenberg protagonist, you know, there's a he's on the same level as like Jeff Goldblum and The Fly, or Viggo Mortensen and like uh, Crimes of the Future, or any. It's of also those. psychics again after Scanners. Yeah, yeah, and then uh, Robert Pattinson as well. Just four 
four guys with great weirdo energy. Yeah. I have a quote about him adapting the Dead Zone because he apparently turned it down. He wasn't really that interested in doing it. Deborah Hill convinced him to do it. And um, he said, um, the whole idea of prophecy and that sort of supernatural thing that King does all the time, I avoid it because I don't believe in it. Although you don't have to believe in it, obviously, because it has metaphorical value. Mm. Once I started to think about that, first of all, it amused me to think that the whole film could be interpreted as the fantasy of a crazy person. And secondly, it is a very good analogy of an artist who creates and has visions of some kind and is in exile from normal society for that. He's an interesting guy. I love yeah. the way his brain works. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, as you mentioned, like, I think he's like bringing his own ideas to the story but he's also like trimming it within like an inch of his life he recruited Jeffrey Bohm to write the script but he had complete control over everything okay and uh yeah just the, the, I love the way he depicts this kind of more supernatural narrative elements from the book with you know, such flair like the first time Johnny has one of his premonitions when he touches the nurse's hand and he looks to the other side of the hospital room and Cronenberg cuts to his POV which is the nurse's kid's bedroom on fire mm. and then Johnny is in the bedroom on fire before Cronenberg cuts back to him in the hospital and he tells the nurse like your daughter's screaming it's not too late <laughs> and the really scary bit is that you see the daughter has a fishbowl in the bedroom and it starts bubbling like a kettle mm. from the heat of the flames yeah, it's just yeah. great detail and then other gnarly bit um, the bit where they've tracked down the serial killer to his house and he's holed himself up in the bathroom room and there's a very disturbing very memorable moment involving a scissors mm, yeah <laughs> very Stephen King but mm. also very Cronenbergian yeah and um, but I really I do think like the real genius touch is that it makes the non-supernatural everyday elements of the story as important or maybe even more important than the those supernatural elements because like the movie plays more like a drama about an ordinary man thrust into this situation beyond his control and all like the disappointments and tragedies that befall him like so there's like Johnny's relationship with the love of his life, Sarah, played mm. by Brooke Adams, um, snatched from him on account of this car accident. There is uh, the scene where he meets Sarah for the first time since like waking up from a coma and he's trying to be cordial and he's making jokes and he's trying to hide from her how devastated he is. But you know, he's just in so much emotional pain. Mm. And Sarah at one point is like, please don't look at me like that. And he says, for you, five years have come and gone. For me, it's just the next day. And Walken's voice breaks a little and he's like, my feelings haven't changed. And uh, it's so sad. Yeah, it really <laughs> it's, is. I was yeah, like on the yeah. edge, edge of tears, like basically the whole time I was watching the movie. Um, There's the you know, other bit where Sarah is, she's like torn between the, her love for Johnny and her husband. Mm. And they spend this magical day with Johnny where they, they sleep together for the first time. But then after she says something like, we can't do this again. And he quietly pleads to her. Like it doesn't have to end, and but she like cuts him off, mm. and um, there's also the bit where like another bit of the movie, but he just mentors the young boy and winds up saving his life. Yeah, but in the process, they're torn away from each other by the kid's awful father. Yeah, <laughs> sucky guy. Yeah, but um, yeah, there's just all those moments feel are very melodramatic, but are actually the parts of the movie that pop into my head when I think about it. Mm. And yeah. I think putting such an emphasis on those moments was a bit of a risk because I imagine people going to see a Stephen King movie after Carrie or The Shining, you know, they want that more, like, the pyrotechnics. They yeah, want the sort yeah. of, like, man running around with an axe. But, um, and, like, he, as I mentioned, like, he cuts some supernatural stuff out of the book uh, for the movie. But I think the gamble paid off because you really care about Johnny as a person mm. and what he yeah, goes through very true. Yeah. and the people in his life. And you're so much more invested than when he's in peril. Yeah, I think what makes this... I'm not going to say it's a better King adaptation than The Shining. Um, I argued for Joe recently. On a, it was just that his 40th anniversary that, that it's yeah. the best Stephen King adaptation. But you could be right. Yeah. In certain in adaptation terms, maybe. I'm not going to argue that it's a better movie than The Shining. Sure. Maybe it is a better adaptation. But um, I think Johnny's progression as a character is leagues ahead of like Kubrick writing 
the Jack Terrence and Wendy and Danny characters because I, I just finished the book of The Shining and like that's there's there's a so, there's things you can track in there whereas you know everyone says it Stephen King himself has said it that the, the Terrence characters start at 100 and only go further from there hmm. your son must be corrected <laughs> Mr. Torrance love that guy um, no, you've always been the caretaker here I do think like a huge amount of why you care about Johnny is walking though mm. and like he's reigning as I mentioned reigning in a lot of his natural eccentricity here to I think deliver this very natural very believable very emotional performance of a naturally introverted shy quiet person being pushed to their breaking point and while for a lot of the movie like Johnny maintains this composed manner he also for much of it feels like he could burst into tears or start shedding in anger which he does at some point and it's in those moments you know Walken gives us the more things that I think he becomes known for mm. like you know the ice is gonna break and um, I want to ask you your thoughts on this the dead zone with its religious elements its snowy town and its increasingly desperate hopelessly character and its third act towards uh, a form of vigilantism mm. uh, reminded me of First Reformed a lot yeah, Do you yeah, know? yeah. <laughs> I now that you say it, yeah, yeah, I didn't really get it at the time, but when I was watching it, but yeah, no, that, that tracks. Yeah. yeah, as you heard in the intro, this show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, Ireland's largest network of independent podcasts. There's plenty of other great shows to check out on the network. Here's a taster of one. Hello, it's Stephanie Preisner, and I want to tell you about my podcast. Basically, basically, if you have anything that you don't understand or you want made simple. You contact me and I get someone in. I get an expert in to explain the situation to you. We've had episodes on what is the story with AI? What is the story with trying to conceive? What is the story with Brexit? What is the story with being the Taoiseach? We have so many episodes in our back catalogue for you to listen to. But also, if there's anything that you currently want made simple, contact me on Stephanie Preisner on Instagram and I will get an episode straight for you. I know that face are also delighted to finally get to tell listeners about Headstuff Plus. Headstuff Plus is the one-stop shop for everything on the Headstuff Podcast Network, Ireland's largest podcast network and the one to which I Know That Face belongs. If you're a fan of I Know That Face or any other shows on the network, become a member of Headstuff Plus and get bonus episodes of Headstuff shows, other exclusive content, merchandise, early access to live events and lots more. We here at I Know That Face have already recorded a handful of bonus episodes where myself and Andrew talk about more current news and releases in the world of film and TV. But also in the future, we have plans for more actor-themed series as well, along with releasing episode outtakes, accompanying articles, etc. All for Headstuff Plus subscribers. To sign up to Headstuff Plus, it's just €5 plus fat per month. When you sign up, no matter what show or shows you are supporting, you still get access to everything. All the bonus material for all the podcasts on the network. A lot of great podcasts. Plus, by doing so, you'll be supporting I Know The Face to bring you more top material. For all the details and to sign up, visit headstuffpodcasts.com. And now, back to the show. Do you want to talk about Pace from Heaven? Yeah, sure. <clears throat> is this anything to do with the song? But, you know, yeah, the they, Prima they, sang. Yeah, they sing it in the in the movie, okay. yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, Arthur Parker, played by Steve Martin, is a sheet music salesman in Depression-era Chicago, desiring to start his own business, but unable to convince his wife Joan, played by Jessica Harper, um, from people will know from Suspiria, um, to give him her inheritance, he goes to the city to try for a bank loan. There he meets school teacher Eileen, played by Bernadette Peters, with whom he embarks on a brief affair which leaves her pregnant and jobless. Desperate, she turns to a stylish pimp named Tom, played by Christopher Walken, for help, and upon Arthur's return he finds her a changed woman, eager to skip town with him. You know, you're very nice looking, Lulu. Thank you. 
You could have a great career, and you should. Yes, you should. Only one thing stops you, dear. You're too good. Too damn good. If you want a future, darling, why don't you get a past? Cause that fatal moment's coming at last. We're all alone, no chaperone can get our number. The world's in slumber, let's misbehave. This is a very depressing, who would have guessed, Depression-era movie, while also a very entertaining musical full of uniquely despicable characters. Mm. Uh, most male protagonists of musicals aren't as into the concept of blurred lines and sometimes outright sexual assault as Arthur is. Within the first five minutes, he attempts, I uh, guess what, what the term is, content warning, by the way, uh, just for um, sexual assault. Um, he attempts spousal rape on his wife twice in the first, like, five minutes. Um and it makes him it makes it a more complicated, naughty film that the main viewpoint character is sort of an unrepentant horn dog and is willing to do whatever he can to get what he wants. And his, uh, and in comparison, his wife Joan is sexually anxious, and though she le- she loves him, she finds herself often incapable of physically loving him. Uh, Eileen is initially similar, but to Joan, but falls under Arthur's spell much easier, though that's much to her own detriment, as the plot. We'll say, and all of this grim, dark stuff is juxtaposed with bright and cheerful musical numbers, full of entertainingly intricate dance numbers and discombobulating lip syncing. So no one actually sings in the movie; they're lip syncing to, I guess, standards of like the twenties and thirties depression era uh, standards, like "Pennies from Heaven" and um, you know, "Love a Little, Laugh a Little." That's the song they sing at the end, and it's uh, incredibly grim, um, even though it is very cheerful. Uh, it's a shame then that we don't see more of Walken's Tom, who easily sort of fits into the story. Eileen uh, meets him in a bar when she's found out she, she's lost her job, she's pregnant, and she goes to a bar to like, um, I say, guys, drown her sorrows or try to find some kind of opportunity, maybe. And Tom is unfortunately the opportunity. Um, and he could have been around a whole lot more. Unfortunately, he's only in one scene, but what a scene it is. I'll give you three words tap dance striptease. Oh, <laughs> my vapors. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Oh mercy! And there's there's a whole load of musical numbers, all all pretty memorable, like the the one that's that one that starts with Steve Martin just saying, "Oh, it's not the sort of thing you can put into words," and it cues into this kind of la la <laughs> sort of no, it cues into you know like chipmunk Alvin and the Chipmunks. Oh, right. their ver- their kind of singing. It's yeah. kind of like that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. That's really funny. Um, but Watkins is a real standout first because it's so good. He's like tap dancing all over the bar. He's jumps onto a pool table and these two prostitutes start like pulling his clothes off of him um, and are like fighting over his suspenders as they pull his trousers down um, and he's like lip syncing I don't know I actually can't remember what song it is but he's he does a good job lip syncing because he has this like thin pencil moustache the pinstripe suit flower in, the, in his lapel and his, uh, his, his like normal like Elvis kind of what he thinks I think is an Elvis hairstyle mm. is uh, so, slicked back against his head Um and uh, and then he never shows up again. <laughs> I thought he had like a really big role in the movie. No, he has a pivotal role, but not a big one. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's like third build on Wikipedia. I know it's strange. Yeah. The only thing this movie needs is more walking. Uh, <laughs> say that about most movies. Yeah, that's really. true. Yeah. yeah. And it's easy to see that Walken finds acting like a really rewarding experience, but it's also clear that he really, really loves dancing as well. Yeah. Well, obviously, we're, we probably won't talk about that much, but now's a good time to raise it. The Fatboy Slim video. Yeah. Weapon yeah, of choice. Yeah. Yeah. And he's great in that. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it's the kind of video you watch and the kind of performance he gives in that video that you believe a man could fly. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
And it must also just be nice to have just have to do one scene in a musical and then dip. Poor old Steve Martin is stuck doing grueling tap dance training for six months. Yeah. Um, and I think ultimately Tom is just this kind of avatar for the great evil of capitalism that the movie is really about. And not only does it depict the horrors of being a woman in the 1920s with its kind of Madonna and whore dynamic of um, Joan and Eileen, um, respectively. Uh, it also depicts capitalism's oppressive nature and how money, whether someone has it or not, turns everyone against each other in the end. Yeah. Like David Fincher's The Killer. Much like David Fincher's The Killer. Great movie. Yeah. yeah. Incredible movie. Yeah. Um, can I talk about At Close Range? Yes. Yes. I'll be short and sweet about this. Though it's very good, um, I don't hold it in quite as high regard as The Deer Hunter and The Dead Zone and I'll need a, I'll need a bit of time with King of New York. Um, <laughs> so this is directed by James Foley who um, also made the uh, film version of Glengarry Gun Ross as well as the final two Fifty Shades of Grey movies. So that's that's range. Yeah. But um, <laughs> uh, based on true events, uh, though the names have been changed, uh, the film focuses on Brad Whitewood Jr. played by Sean Penn, a misfit outcast teenager living in rural Pennsylvania. No, uh, not unlike the town in The Deer Hunter mm. with his mother and grandmother and his mother's boyfriend um, after he gets in a fight with the boyfriend Brad Jr. goes to stay with his biological father Brad Sr. Uh, Christopher Walken the uh, mustachioed leader of a criminal gang of thieves at first Brad Jr. thinks he has a maid like the father he always wanted takes him under his wing and they start putting off scores together and Brad Jr. thinks he'll quickly get enough money to leave town with his girlfriend Terry played by Mary Stuart Masterson however it isn't long before events spiral out of control and Brad Sr. reveals a nastier more ruthless side always the way ever been out west Tommy no never heard of coyote no they make the sound like woo 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 coyote bitch gets in heat First thing she does, she took care of the males. Then she heads toward town. All the neighborhood dogs, they smell her. They go crazy. They follow her. She lures them out onto the desert. She get a dog out there, alone. All other coyotes come along, they circle around. You kill that dog, eat it. Tommy, if you were to go up in front of that grand jury, what would you say? Nothing. There. I really like this. It reminded me a lot of um, uh, Animal Kingdom with Ben Mendelsohn, mm. um, with its sort of narrative of disillusioned youth taken in by crime family and how in that environment these kind of like dysfunctional family dynamics suddenly have like life and death stakes. Mm. Um, there's something also kind of fable-like, mythic, kind of Greek tragedy ask about the father-son relationship at the heart of the movie, which is all the more insane given that it's based on true events. Um I will say, I think it's a better family drama than a crime thriller, just because Brad Sr.'s heists, as depicted in the movie, seem pretty small scale. Mm. Like, at the beginning, we see him and his crew uh, break into a safe, and one of the gang, played by uh, David Strahern, 
um, pulls out a wad of bills and the gang are like hundreds and Strahern's like twenties. <laughs> <laughs> then later in the movie, Brad Sr.'s whole racket is robbing tractors, which isn't exactly like Neil McCauley and Heat. Yeah, it doesn't sound very cinematic to be honest. And in that close range, they talk about the FBI being assigned to investigate Brad Sr.'s gang and you're you're thinking about like the FBI agent assigned to that, like in the cafeteria at Quantico being like, they got me on the fucking John Deere outfit. <laughs> like... <laughs> Um, and also, I was also thinking about Jesse Plemons and Killers oh, of the Flower Moon. Yeah. Being like, I'm here about these tractors. What about them? See you stealing them. Yeah. <laughs> I want to see. I want to see Mindhunter season three, but it's just exactly. about that. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but um, but again, those crimes do spiral into murder and um and worse things than murder. So maybe they're right to send someone out there. But um, the movie is um also like a really good portrait of like disaffected youths with all this pent up energy in a rural town with. Not a lot to do and how that can lead to bad decisions being made. And uh, the young cast in this movie are great. Uh, so you have the late and great Chris Penn, uh, Sean Penn's real life brother, playing his brother in the movie. And in their friend group is also Crispin Glover and Kiefer Sutherland. Oh, unreal. And um, what, what, a, what a what a great face. What, yeah, absolutely. On Crispin, Crispin Glover. Crispin Glover is just incredible in the movie. The most pointy man <laughs> ever to, ever to s- s- strut onto a cinema screen. Walken, fantastic as well. Um, the movie really weaponizes his ability to just shift from charming um, and likable to sinister and scary. And uh, the quote I highlighted from Eber at the start of the podcast was from his review of At Close Range. Okay. And um, so in the film, like Brad Jr.'s life at home with his mother and grandmother seems really boring and dull, whereas Brad Sr. represents excitement. So after Brad Jr. gets into the fight with the mom's boyfriend, he calls Brad Sr. and he picks up and drives Jr. to his home. It's the first time we see them properly interact and Senior is like, you know, what have you heard about me? And Junior says, you know, I hear you're a thief. And Senior plays that down being like, to some folks, I'm just the devil in blue suede shoes. Don't you believe it? And yeah, Senior is driving really fast and Junior's like, don't you worry about getting a speeding ticket? And he says something like, cops never check the back roads. Besides, this ain't fast. And he like speeds up. <laughs> so he's like funny, but like the warning signs are there. Hmm. But the more time they spend together, you start to see how Senior manipulates Junior he gifts him things but then like criticizes him and like sets some challenges and Junior is very eager to meet them and get more rewards and to like earn his father's love mm. also Senior is definitely Junior's father but there's a question mark as to whether he is Chris Penn's character's Tommy's dad mm. and he brings this up a few times I think to try and like stoke division or competition between the brothers also like Senior is the one who enters Junior's life first when he he just shows up to like drop money off and they have like a brief interaction and that is what inspires Junior to seek him out later. And I think you're sort of left to wonder if that was always the goal of Senior to like get mm. Junior to come to him because Senior himself has a brother in the movie who's in the gang who's a real screw up. And you're wondering, did he just want like another family person in the gang or like a protege? Mm. And um, but as the movie just goes on, Senior reveals more and more darkness until Walken has completely dropped the charm and is just resonating pure evil. And not to spoil, but there's this climactic kitchen set confrontation between Senior and Junior after everything has gone to hell where Senior is like I'm your blood I'm your family I gave you money I gave you a car I took you in doesn't that mean something and Junior says like means what and he's like it means I got feeling for you I care (laughs) I love you is that what you want to hear I love you and it sounds so insincere. <laughs> it's really just further proof that like this character only ever thought of Junior as someone to do his bidding rather than his son. Um, so yeah, really, really good movie. It has a bit of an abrupt ending, but mm. uh, aside from that, really, really good. Okay, yeah. Um, will we do King of New York? Let's go for it, yeah. Okay. I see you've got 16 pages left. <laughs> yeah, listen. I got a bit. 
I got a bit about this. Um, Chris Walken stars in this movie as a drug lord named Frank White, who, having served time in prison, attempts to rebuild his criminal empire in New York um, with the help of his right-hand man, Jimmy Jump Cult, played by a phenomenal yeah. Lawrence Fishburne. Um, he eliminates his rivals. And um, with this newfound power and wealth, White has aims on going legitimate and wants to invest his money in the more rundown districts of the city. However, his violent methods make him the personal target of a trio of cops, played by um, an also phenomenal David Crusoe, Victor Argo, and Wesley Snipes, who grow willing to work outside the law to take him down. From here on, nothing goes down unless I'm involved. No blackjack, no dope deals, no nothing. A nickel bag is sold in the park. I want in. You guys got fat while everybody starved on the street. It's my turn. You think you're gonna live long enough to spend that money, you fucking hump? If any of you are tired of getting ripped off by guys like that, You come with me, I'm at the Plaza Hotel. You're welcome. You're all welcome. Enjoy. Had you seen this before? Never, no. No, what'd you think? F- phenomenal. Yeah, it's really it's fucking really good. Great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was, it was only after the fact that I was like, oh, Abel Ferreira definitely saw Robocop and was like, I want that character in my movie. And so he just sort of, not cut and paste, but like he was like, I reckon he said to Lawrence Fishburne, watch uh, Kurtwood Rob- Smith or- no not Kurtwood Smith but like you know the black guy in his gang oh sure yeah watch mimic the laugh was what I, was what I got from that sure because yeah. he's always like <laughs> yeah yeah the bit where he's like or maybe he was just like uh, watch Batman <laughs> yeah, yeah insane line deliveries yeah. in this movie um yeah obviously a huge fan of this movie's director Abel Ferrara <gasps> room service motherfuckers <laughs> <laughs> there's some incredible oh, yeah. so many good lines in this um I like when he uh, shoots the guy and then like he's the guy's already dead and he keeps shooting them, mm. shooting them. And he's like, if you're fed up being ripped off by people like this, come work for me. I'm at the Plaza Hotel. You're all welcome. And then as he goes to leave, he's like, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, obviously a uh, huge fan of this movie's director, Abel Ferrara, interviewed him for um, Friend of the Pod. Friend yeah, of the Pod, yeah. interviewed him for the podcast. He signed my DVD copy of King of New York, which is really nice. Um I'm also particularly a fan of Abel Ferrara's movies that he did with Nicholas St. John, your road king in New York. Um, also, I'm a big fan of this 1990 to 1996 run of Ferrara, which uh, King of New York kicks off, which is followed then by Bad Lieutenant, mm. I think a masterpiece. Um, his uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers remake, which is really underrated. Dangerous Game with Madonna, which Ooh. is flawed, but interesting. Um, I do a rewatch of that. And then The Addiction, which you talked about in our Lily Taylor episode, which briefly features Walken as a William S. Burroughs reading vampire. Mm-hmm. Um, the Miracle Run then concludes with the gangster flick The Funeral, which stars Walken, which I'll yeah. definitely be watching in part two. Same here. But um, what I love about King New York is that on one level, just really exciting, zippy gangster drama showcasing like an ambitious compelling criminal's rise and fall in the vein of like, Goodfellas, Casino, Scarface, even something more classic like Little Caesar. Mm. If you dig those movies, chances are you'll get something out of uh, King of New York. For sure. Yeah. But I also think Ferrara and St. John bring two other particular things to it. One is this kind of moral complexity in that like 
Frank is a cold-blooded killer who like wipes out his opponents in the crime world, but he's using the money gained from those killings to fund like a public hospital mm. in the South Bronx that politicians in the city want to close down. And also White is careful to like hide his criminal activity and his wealth and you know with his wealth kind of hires these like hotshot lawyers so the cops played by this trio I mentioned can arrest him. And it's pretty chilling how quickly Caruso's character, uh, this detective, is like, we should kill him. Yeah. (laughs) There's that bar scene where he tries to justify it to Snipes and Argo's characters where he's like, we make $36,500 a year to risk our lives every night of the week and Frank gets rich killing people. There's only one way to get Frank. We can make it look like a rival gang. (laughs) And when his lieutenant rightly says no, he's like, you know what my problem is? I can't do my job. My job is to protect the people of the city and you won't let me. (laughs) Uh, Oh yeah, he also says like, every time Frank kills somebody out there, it's our fault. Can you live with that? I can't. And not to spoil, but the cops' subsequent actions lead to a lot of preventable deaths and people being put in peril. So the movie is making you kind of consider who's worse Marley, Mm. Frank, this criminal who deals drugs and kills people, but helps his community. Mm. The wealthy politicians who like, ignore these like poor areas or these corruptible cops. I think that's very Ferraro. Like he likes to get into the grime. Mm. Um, it's actually funny. The movie's on Prime Video, and in its description, Amazon referred to Ferraro as magnificently disreputable, <laughs> which is apt. But also, I thought like an odd bit of editorialization from if yeah. it was more like something that would be on movie. Yeah, uh, Amazon's Amazon and Prime's video streaming service is strange. It's. I think it's the best one in terms of like movies on there, but it's the worst UI. Yeah, where it's for like sure. I have no idea. Like half the stuff is on there. Mm. You know. Um, speaking of grime, by the way, you can just tell this movie is shot on location in like mm. late eighties, yeah, early nineties, yeah. chaotic New York. Um, it has that electric atmosphere where anything could happen at any point, like people busting into rooms of machine guns and shedding room service and yeah. like blowing everyone away. Yeah. Um, looks amazing. One of the great New York movies. The cast is stellar. We could do this game with that movie where. We just name a cast and see who like runs out of someone first, but it's just because like it's like no, it's like Steve Buscemi. You know yeah, I mean? yeah. Like Giancarlo Esposito, test you, test you. Yeah. Um, Giancarlo Esposito as Lance, Harold Perrineau, one of the muggers on the subway. Mm. Um, Freddie Jackson as himself. <laughs> um, who am I ashamed to say I only know from that Outcast song, "So Fresh, So Clean," Ooh, where nice. Big Boy raps cooler than Freddie Jackson sipping a milkshake in an ice storm. Or a snowstorm because uh, he's so cool. Yeah. Um, Paul Calderon is really good in this movie. Who is the um, he is the person who rats out Frank, but is like kind of his um, who does all his business. You know, he's like sets yeah, up meetings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was the yeah. second choice to play Jules in Pulp Fiction, but Samuel Jackson got him. Oh, yeah, wow. and he's in Pulp Fiction. We got, got got the smaller role, but okay. uh, his career yeah. could have gone very differently. Yeah. Um, walking in this, what do you think? Great. I think there's a stink, distinct sense of threat in every scene. And it's easy for viewers to see beneath sort of Frank White's easygoing exterior to the cold, calculating ex- presence he shows only to his most trusted followers or uh, the people he's about to kill. Mm. Um, I think he has a very skewed view of what New York is because it's obviously changed. I don't know how long he... It doesn't say how long he was in prison for. It doesn't, which... Yeah. Um, he says he was in prison half his life, but I'm yeah. not sure if that's a bunch of sentences strung together because I think you see on a screen at one point what he was in jail for but I don't think it was anything too it was all like drug trafficking and stuff yeah yeah and it's I think it's kind of clear that by the time he gets out that New York has changed and so has its underworld like it's no longer the place of sort of amoral honour like thief's code Frank grew up and built an empire in and now it's kind of this seedy nightmare version of his city whose underworld is ruled by like uncompromising drug dealers and callous human traffickers 
and is a, is a city where the cops have to get down into the mud with the crooks in an attempt to get their guy. So it shares DNA with like Ferreira's friend and collaborator Michael Mann, as well as William Hurricane Billy Friedkin, RIP. Uh, and is as good as the morally ambiguous crime thrillers that they produced uh, produced by these men in the same era and I think the fatal flaw in Frank's character is that he thinks he can bring back the past that he can resurrect the non-existent honourable glory days of New York crime and the world above and below has changed so much that there's no new low the criminals won't stoop to it's hard to kind of rebuild rebuild something on foundations that aren't there anymore Mm. And I think even Frank proves this near the end where he executes a character at his at that character's friend's funeral. Yeah. Yeah. And um don't think he could have gotten away in that scene. No, probably not. Yeah, uh, yeah. But it, it just it begs the question, like, what does King of New York mean when everyone you could possibly rule over is dead? Yes, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um also one of one thing I found funny, uh I know Ferreira obviously has a thing for vampires because he he obviously he made the addition. I had this point as well. Tarantino brought this point up. Yeah, Yeah. and there's a part where Wesley Snipes' character Tommy Flanagan, very funny name to give a Wesley Snipes character, um, mentions the Bloodsuckers eight years before Blade and then the next important scene is set in a cinema full of triad gangsters watching Nosferatu. Yeah. I I think Walken is very... Like, he plays a vampire in the addiction. I think he's very Dracula-esque in King of New York where he shows up and he'll just like do a funny like line delivery and like grin or like smile at someone and then suddenly they're just do his bidding yeah <laughs> where it's like is there's the point where i obviously like there's how loyal jimmy jack is for him mm. you know and like there's obviously they're that incredible intro scene where they reconnect. once again our favorite comparison renfield right yeah a little bit yeah. and they're doing the the dancing you know i love money <laughs> um that bit where he's like he um they mention how like uh the colombians are taking a permanent vacation in hell and he's like oh i've been away for so long uh I feel no remorse. It's <laughs> a terrible thing. He's like laughing. Congratulations, man. The Colombian motherfuckers, they took permanent vacation in hell, if you know what I mean. Well, I must have been away too long because my feelings are dead. I, I feel no remorse. Yo. It's a terrible thing. <laughs> yeah, every being in jail makes you feel like that, man. I got a present for you. But he has to have that moment where he's like... Uh, how come you never come to visit me? And you're you're like, how's Jimmy Jack gonna respond? And he's like, who'd want to see you in a cage, man? Ooh, yeah, and it's and, great. And he's yeah. like, of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what I want my friends to so say to me. After Not that, that I don't want them to visit me in prison. Yeah, but Jimmy Jack's so loyal. And then, um, for when I go to prison, embezzling funds from this podcast. <laughs> Same way we like, that, that implies that we make money. Um, <laughs> the lawyer character. She's she knows what Frank is doing. She knows yeah. that Frank probably has like multiple mistresses and then, you know, still dates them, still yeah. stands by him. Um there's a one of the only flaws I have with this movie is that like there's always a bunch of women around Frank and mm-hmm. I'm not sure if they're like are they part of the crew, are they his mistresses, are they like bodyguards or whatever. Yeah. But there's a bit where um the cops raid his club but like pretend to be like another gang and someone goes to take a shot at Frank. And Teresa Randall's character is like, no, back! And then, like, jumps in front of him and just takes all the bullets. Mm. And you're like, why would she do that? Yeah. <laughs> but also, I kind of get it because I sort of like Frank mm. in that yeah. he's a sort of Robin Hood-esque figure. You know what I mean? Like, as he says in the movie, like, spent half of his life in jail and now that he's out, like, it's his turn to get rich and powerful. And, like, obviously to do that, he does a lot of terrible things. Um, commits gangland murders. Um... The victims either being kind of gangsters or crooked police. But Ferrara and St. John are very clever in that they always frame him as an underdog and and a more respectable type of criminal, as you said, than um, 
what is happening in the city yeah. right now when he comes out because um as i mentioned helps the hospital wants to improve the city at one point like he tells his lawyer girlfriend the uh, jennifer played by janet julian um who uh, retired from acting and became a uh, parent educator which oh, i thought was funny cool yeah <laughs> good but, for her. um very yeah good for her but um you know, Frank tells her is kind of the heat is closing in on him. Like, I've lost a lot of time. It's gone. From here on, I can't waste any. If I can have just a year or two, I'll make something good. Mm. And, um, you know, as I mentioned, like when he kills his rival, Artie Clay, like he tells the room full of witnesses, like that you're getting ripped off by people like him. Come work for me. Same with the muggers on the subway. Yeah. When they approach him, he's instead of like giving them like, oh, I'm so scared. He he flashes his gun, throws him a wad of bills. And is like, I got work for you. Come work for me. And they do. Like you see them later on in the movie. Yeah. Um. And, like, he rationalizes his crimes to himself as saying, like, there's always going to be drugs. There's always going to be crime. At least with me, it's fairer. You know, I help the community. Yeah, he, he says that to Victor Argo's character at the end. Yeah, you know. I have the the speech here. He says, uh, when the DA's office investigated the sudden death of Artie Clay, they found that he left a 13 million estate. How do you explain that? Then there's Larry Wong, who owned half of Chinatown when he passed away. Larry used to rent his tenements to Asian refugees, his own people, for $800 a month to share a single toilet on the same floor. How about King Tito? He had 13-year-old girls hooking for him on the street. Those guys are dead because I don't want to make money that way. Emil Zappa, the matter brothers they're dead because they're running the city into the ground and victor Agus character is like you expected to get away with killing all these people and white's like i spent half my life in prison i never got away with anything and i never killed anybody that didn't deserve it and then he says like this country spends 100 billion a year on getting high and it's not because of me all that time i was wasting in jail it got worse i'm not your problem i'm a businessman and it's hard to disagree yeah, but <laughs> in it's the context also, like, of the film yeah, yeah yeah and um i think that robin hood-esque element to the story does a lot to make Frank very compelling mm. and sort of likable and seductive despite your better judgment and despite the violence he doles out. But yeah, just on the vampire thing, um, it sort of reminded me of Sicario, you know, where they need the Medellin cartel back in mm. control. Yes. And yeah, he, yeah. he is just this film's version of the Medellin cartel. He, There's always going to be crime. We might as well have someone who is a, a little fairer and a little bit thinking of the big picture yeah, as yeah, opposed to yeah. fully in it for himself. Yeah. yeah. Um, this podcast brought to you by the Keenahan gang. <laughs> no, no, no. This is we're talking about movie stuff yeah, here. Yeah. I would never want to meet anybody like no, that. No, no, not at all. Yeah, <laughs> but um as I mentioned on the like the vampire point, on one level you're like, why are all these people devoted to Frank? But you also kind of get it because like the character promises to improve their lives and Walken is so seductive when he smiles and with his odd line deliveries. But also because like Frank White and Walken seduce the viewer into rooting for him uh against their better nature, at least to a point. I think without spoiling the worst act Frank commits is in the last scene of the movie when his back is truly against the wall. And I think once he does that action, the movie and the viewer are like, he has to go. Yeah, yeah. And um, but yeah, no, incredible movie. Um, it's on Prime Video, along with a lot of other four-hour joints. Mm. Um, I'll do a proper walk and wrap up in our second episode. But um, do you know what you're going to watch for that yet? I have it written down. I know the funeral is on there. Um, uh, Man on Fire. Okay. For sure. I watched it recently. I'm not sure if I'll mm. rewatch it. But then uh, it's a great movie. Yeah, yeah. And uh something in the mid Oh, Seven Psychopaths. Oh, yeah. Incredible. And then he kind of his work in good movies kind of tapers off towards the end of the 2010s into this the early part of this decade. So I might go out on a limb and watch that Stephen Merchant show he's in. Oh yeah, or you could watch Severance. Yeah, it although depends. he doesn't, he doesn't show up to like the fourth episode of that. Yeah, I think I'll, I'll probably go with them. Um, the Outlaws, the Outlaws, or yeah. something, or whatever it's called. Yeah, yeah, it looks funny, and it looks like each episode is only thirty minutes. <laughs> sure, I'm definitely gonna watch the funeral in the nick of time. Aside from that, I'm not sure because, as usual, I'm torn between movies I've seen before 
that I know are good, like Catch Me If You Can, mm. G, which he's only been Oscar nominated twice, and yeah. that's for the other. That was the other one, um, or Seven Psychopaths, which I, I do love. Or do I watch stuff I haven't seen and might otherwise never watch without this excuse, mm. like the Stepford Wives remake, <laughs> or um, which was remade as a comedy? Very strange. Mm. Um, Paul Schrader's critically panned Elmore Leonard adaptation, Touch, or uh, Wild Mountain Time. Oh God, yeah. Or Walken's other Irish set movie, uh, the 1998 horror, The Eternal, aka Trance. It has multiple <laughs> titles, which is always a good sign. Yeah, <laughs> when a movie's good. Um, good, good sign that it's a big pile of shite. I reckon. Yeah. Hopefully, I'll uh, nail the balance. Um, email I know that facepod at gmail dot com if you'd like to reach out to the show. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Please leave us an iTunes rating if you'd be so kind. For those who want more of the pod, sign up to Headstuff Plus, five euro plus tax a month, where you can listen to exclusive bonus episodes of the show. Andrew, where can people find more of your work? Find me at the Headstuff Gaming section where we talk about what we play, why we play, and how we play it, as well as www.fortnitefrights.wordpress.com, uh, where I'm writing an article every two weeks about the most influential horror movie over the of every year over the last hundred years. Did you work out about that year? That uh, we yes, I skipped power? it and oh, went straight okay, to the thing from another world. Excellent. So we're back on track. Um, check me out Joe.e uh, and you can also check out that article I wrote about the Dead Zone there where I go really in depth about um, the, how it was made the uh, the combination of King and Cronenberg uh, see you in the bye bye this show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network a hub for the creative and the curious Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.